As we prepare this morning to hear God's word, I want to just make a comment about our prayer time here. Um, It's possible, because human nature as it is, for us to say, man, those are some long prayers. But I want to point out, in in, in our view of the covenant renewal service, we confess our sins and then we ascend into the presence of the Almighty, who is our Heavenly Father. And we come before Him at that time. Why wouldn't we, if we're in the presence of the Almighty, bring our list of petitions as long as they may seem to be? If you're a parent, a grandparent, perhaps even a great-grandparent, and you're praying for all of your kids, you want God's God's attention to be upon God all of those generations or all of the people you're praying for so when we come together as the people of god and we worship and we have these prayers up here particularly when we get to the petitions we want to lay out what the needs of our congregation and this community are Um, so be encouraged try to stay focused pay attention so that you can add some of these to your prayer list as well well let us begin here this morning with a word of prayer asking God to bless the preaching of his word let us pray our most good and gracious God and Heavenly Father it is so good for us to gather together as your people we thank you for your so great salvation we thank you for this Christmas season and what it means to us we thank you that we can set aside a time when we can celebrate the incarnation of your son come to earth to save us from our sins. We pray that the joy we feel in this time of holiday and celebration would be a time when we feel the joy of your salvation and the joy that we have because our lives have meaning and purpose and hope because of you. Bless us now this time we have together. We pray that you would bless all who worship this day in your name. We pray that you would encourage them so that they might spread your kingdom throughout all the earth. In Christ our Savior's name we pray. Amen. So many of you know that I had opportunity to travel to our general council in Monroe. And obviously that's a place where I spent quite a few years and was at before we came here. And there's all kinds of talks and times of fellowship and dinners and meals together. And of course, if you perhaps you've listened to any of the talks given by the speakers they were all about 15 or 20 minutes long with the exception of the Wednesday night service where we had a complete church service but there were these times of teaching and all the themes were about fighting and one of the most significant things that I heard was not in those talks But rather, on the very last night, about half of the folks had already begun traveling home. We had a social event there, and there were many yet who remained who came to it. And there were lots of conversations going on. Groups of people at tables, men standing outside on the deck overlooking the bayou where we were. Ladies and groups huddled together, talking about grandkids and all kinds of things of ministry. And as I was going around visiting with different folks, 
I, I came across this older minister speaking to a younger minister. And I thought, wow, this is a very insightful conversation they're having. I didn't interrupt. I didn't even interject. I just stood there and listened for a few moments. And this older pastor was giving some wise counsel to this younger pastor. And he was saying, you know, we've been here all week. We've heard fight, fight, fight. And we must fight. But it is important that we build as well. We need to be like the men in Nehemiah's day where we have a sword in one hand and our trials, you know trials, or other tools building the Christian culture, the Christian society, if you will, our church communities. Because we need to understand that we can be in combat and make all our attention about fighting and when the war is over and this empire falls and we turn around there is nothing behind us and what we need to do as faithful Christians which is what Advent is about is to have a Christ-centered world where we are building and thinking about the future and so I wanted to expand on this thought and idea a little bit here today. We'll be reading out of Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning with verse 15. And we need to think to, about today that this is Advent, which is the culture that we build. Why do we light candles? Why do we do change our our uh, family worship a little bit? Why do we change the songs that we're singing? We want our life to be centered around God and to have opportunities to teach our children, to teach and encourage one another that, so that no matter what the noise is, what the distractions are, what the enemy is doing, yes, we're going to combat, we're going to pray, we're going to take our Supreme Court up in prayer to our Lord. We're going to pray against those that are railing and hating against God. We're going to stand in our own communities and by virtue of eating with folks and talking with folks, extend the kingdom of God by His Spirit. We're going to do all those things. We're going to deal with sin in our own lives and sin in the lives of our families and sin in the lives before us in this church. Not for the point of tearing down, but for the point of restoration and lifting up. You know, in our Sunday school class, um, we're working through uh, uh, an article by Rush Dooney called Sin, Confession, and Dominion. And of course, we must recognize sin so that we can bring confession to it. And then what? Once the Lord has granted us forgiveness, we are to go and do the work of God. And that is taking dominion. So Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, says this, And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. I'm going to pause right there and say, if you're unfamiliar with this story, 
So we know that where we are in, in the history of Israel is that <clears throat> Israel and Judah both sinned. They wouldn't repent despite God sending prophets. They were worshiping Baals, and in some cases, they would restore temple worship, but they still kept their high places. In other words, we're going to do the trappings of following God by going to the temple, but we're really going to worship God the way we want to up at the high places. That's what the high places are all about. You see, folks, we can't come into the presence of God and say, I'm going to worship you the way I want. No, we need to look to God's word and say, let us worship God according to his word. I mean, you know, that's, that's what happened with Cain and Abel. Worshiping God, one worshiped the way God asked, the other worshiped in his own way, and murder was the result of it. Wicked, wicked sin. And so what happened is the people of Israel and Judah, they were carried off in captivity and judgment. Now listen, God is kind. When he brings judgment, when he brings discipline, it is always measured. When this happened, he said, this is how long it's going to be. So Daniel wasn't in, in Babylon wondering, well, when is this supposed to be restored? The people of Israel knew that 70 years was their time of exile and that God would begin restoration. Not only did God begin restoration by allowing the people to go back, but you'll find that in that narrative story of Ezra and Nehemiah that you see that the king of Babylon, the king of the world at that time, whose kingdom was vast, out of his storehouse, things were paid for to restore the kingdom. And I would say to us today that as we consider this passage, Nehemiah is there and he's gone back and <clears throat> Ezra the, the, the high priest is already there and they are um, trying to restore things and Nehemiah comes back and he looks and everything is, the walls are just falling down, the homes along the walls are disasters, they are open to attack. And of course if you read through Nehemiah you know there were all kinds of plots to destroy them, to discredit them, and God at every hand protected them, but they had to engage in the battle themselves. They had to be prepared. They didn't just stand around waiting, just saying, well, God's going to do something. No, they had to take action, and God delivered them in that action. So back to verse 16, so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears and shields, the bows and wore armor and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. It was very important to recognize that they had to get dressed for battle. They had to prepare. We need to pray. We need to look at God's word and the armor of God and say, how does this apply in my prayer life? How do I put on these things? What do these things mean so that I can be prepared for the day? We need to be prepared for action. And it says this, Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And, of course, this is Nehemiah talking. So he's the supervisor, and he's got the trumpet guy, the guy that's going to say, 
hey, here's where the fight is. He was with Nehemiah. But everyone is working, both prepared to fight, ready for the battle, and yet still building. And he says this, Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Now this is really important. Sometimes we think we're all alone. We think that we are separated. We're far from others who think like us, who pray like us, that do the things like us. But first of all, remember, our God will fight for us. And second, let us remember to rally for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I know we need to have a sign out there by the road so people can designate where we are on a map, can find us. But if, if we really want to think, in, as, as Christians, we need to think it isn't about the name on the church sign. It isn't about the denomination. We need to think of ourselves as the people of God in the, in the greater, I don't know, Anne Arundel County area, or I know we're a little more spread out than that. But my point is, we are the people of God, all of us, ourselves, and every other Christians that are in all the churches in this community today. And even in our petitions, we pray not only for local congregations, but congregations across the world and our brothers and sisters across the world. And in that sense, we are responding. We're hearing the trumpet blow. There's persecution to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or Kuwait or China or wherever it may be, and we pray about that. But what about our brothers and sisters who are doing battle in our own community? The issues that they're facing. Let us build relationships with them. We're not isolated. But we need to, when we hear the problems, respond and rally together. And what will happen? God will fight for us. Now, all kingdoms, all empires fall. This is real important. There's a time where nationalism, I think, really gripped the church of America. Where we would find an American flag and a Christian flag on the platform of every church, or a great many of them anyway. And we need to, to understand that I am grateful that I was born in the United States. And there are great privileges to it. And God has blessed us. But do not lose sight that we're not an American church. We are a Christian church. We are the people of God. And we are united on something much bigger than a flag, than a government. And there are all kinds of good things that we can do to be supportive of our community. And God doesn't say just abandon where you're from and what's going on. No, he says engage in that culture. But I want us to understand, don't worry if America falls. Worry if the church falls. Now, the truth is, every country, every government, every culture is never better than the church, the people of God. If we're unrepentant, the culture will be unrepentant. The government will be unrepentant. 
If we're not about God's business, the culture and the government will not be about God's business. But all empires, all kingdoms fall. Psalm 46.6 tells us that the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He, that is God, uttered his voice and the earth melted. <clears throat> Every kingdom falls. We can look back in history and see the Babylonians fell. Right? The Persians fell, the Greeks fell, the Romans fell. Let's fast forward all of the, the different kingdoms out there. The British Empire fell. We should not be surprised that what, what man builds will fall. And they all will fall at God's voice. Isaiah 13, 19 says, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. That great kingdom of Babylon, you can go find some ruins, but it is overthrown. They do not wield the kind of power that they once did. God's plan is unfolding. He is in charge. Jeremiah 1, 9 and 10 says this, Then the Lord put forth His hand and touched my mouth. This is, to Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah speaking. And the Lord said, to me, behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant. See, God doesn't just bring judgment. He also brings restoration. But it is important that the prophet of Jeremiah was not just a prophet to the people of Israel, to Judah, but rather he was... Also a prophet. If you read through Jeremiah, you see that there are all kinds of statements to the other kingdoms of the world. God has a plan and it is unfolding. It is not a surprise to God one bit that the United States and our culture is in the state that it's in. It's God's plan. I've said it before, I'll say it again. All things, no matter where you stand on this, COVID is a work of God to purify His church and to call people into His kingdom. Because there is nothing else. God purifies His people and He adds to His kingdom. He adds souls. We need to recognize that in judgment, God always plans not only to destroy and to throw down, but to build and to plant. Think about this. Even at the temptation of Jesus, we see this. In Matthew, it says this. Again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, that is to Jesus, all these things I will give you if, we will, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. You know, Jesus was at battle right there, and it was all over the kingdoms of the world. Now, this is really important. When Satan was dealing with Jesus, Satan was pretty slick, or at least he thought he was. What did he do? He used God's word as a way to try to entice Jesus. Folks, we need to know God's word and know its intent. What did Jesus do? He responded with Scripture every time. 
He knew God's word. Remember, there's going to be things that are going to go on in the world around us where there's going to be truths or half-truths or perspectives on God's word. Do not fall trapped to that. Finally, we see in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says this, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. All kingdoms fall and have fallen, because all are under Jesus. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, as in question one, What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What is the point of kingdoms falling? The, king, the point is that we should be building the eternal kingdom. What does this line mean? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Listen. The bottom line, folks, is we are to train up worshipers of the Almighty in this life, for this life, and for the life to come. We are to train up worshipers of the Almighty. That is your calling as members of this community, in this church, as parents. It's to train up worshipers. It is to disciple. It is to make disciples. It is to teach them all that I have commanded. You know, the portal to all of this is that Jesus is Lord now of all things. Jesus is Lord of all. Of course, we know in Philippians 2, it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, and that, that name of Jesus, at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is not something that is going to happen. It is something that has happened. There's a lot of people living in denial of it. Jesus is Lord right now. And there is a day where all those who are raging against God and those who live in compromise, subtly raging against God, quietly doing it, they think, Yes, they'll, their, their knee will bow and they will declare that Jesus is Lord. But Jesus is already Lord. He sits at the right hand of the Father. What are we building? And again, I'm going to emphasize this. Out of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does he tell us, first of all? All authority. He is Lord. Second, Lord of what? Heaven and earth. What are we to do? Make disciples, baptize, and teaching them to observe. This is where things like Advent are important. We are teaching our children... Through song, through word, through prayer, through decorations, through everything that we do during the Advent season, we are catechizing them and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded. When you put up your nativity scene and you talk about it with your kids as they're putting it up, 
as you're putting decorations on the tree and you're talking about things there, as we sing Advent hymns and Christmas hymns, we are catechizing ourselves, our families, this church, the community. This is what we are doing. Here's the question. What's the how and the where to all this? Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. This is the how and the where. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know, when we hang up the string of lights, and we're telling our children about how God created the stars, and we talk about decorations, and we talk about all the things that we're doing, we have an opportunity to teach and catechize when we're getting up, lying down, all these different things that we're doing. They matter. You know, that, that hymn that we worked on this morning before service, it was so excellent. Those words, we need to sing it, sing it, sing it, so that we are teaching ourselves and our children and reminding ourselves of our calling. You know, in the scriptures, the, Levit the Levitical law sets up the seasons, high days, feasts, and the ordinary time or regular worship. We can talk that in detail, but I, I want us to know that God's word from the beginning, he set up seasons. And it isn't just for harvest, and it isn't just for planting, and it isn't just for when the leaves fall off. He set them up so that we could measure time and know how to orient ourselves back to God at all places. You know, this is all bound to discipleship. Listen, discipleship from your spouse, children, and even this community, and the world requires relationship. And you know what else it requires? Time and space. Right now, the world is always trying to busy us up. We need to take a step back and say relationships matter. In order to do this, in order to build the kingdom of God, in order to be both combating the enemy and building the church, building the people of God up, it's going to take time and space. You've got to plan it. You've got to do it. You gotta have a place where it's at. And even sometimes you have to have a place to store all this stuff that you're gonna bring out every year. You know, we see this that all of this time and space, it's really about God with us. It's relationship. Matthew 1:22 says this: So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they should call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We must be like our God and be with our brethren. We need to be with the people of God. What does this look like practically? 
God tells us what he expects in fr of friendships in Micah 6, 8. It says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. This is God. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? A friend is honest and deals justly. When you get in the lives of your neighbors in this room and the people in your community, we must deal justly. Proverbs 9.8 says this, Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Be wise. Be in a person's life. How are you even going to know how to rebuke them and to treat them justly and to love them in a way to restore them if they're falling into sin unless you know them? Unless you're at each other's tables. Unless you are together. We must be together so that we can rebuke and love one another. We see in verse 9 it says, Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. You and I, all of us, we must be in each other's lives regularly to be effective. Meals, phone calls, I'll even caveat as a little bit to set some of these things up text messages but don't leave it at that because that's only cursory sorrows and times of rejoicing how are you going to be in someone's life when they're undergoing difficulty and sorrow you can't just show up on that day i mean don't ignore it but you know so many sorrows go on and we don't even know they're going on in people's lives because we're not in them. We're not talking. We're not dealing with each other. We're not at each other's tables. You know, we need to understand. You know, we have parties. We rejoice. There'll be some of those during this Advent, and Christmas, and New Year's season. But the sorrows, the difficulties, the trials that we go through, you just have to be in each other's lives so you're talking. God did not design you and I to walk in isolation, but in community. This is what we're building, because the church will remain. The Lord will bless, and our children will be here beyond us. And their children's children, what are we building? We are building the kingdom of God through people. Again, we must be in a person's life, and I stress, be at the table. In Jim Jordan's book called The Sociology of the Church, in chapter 11, is titled this. It's God's Hospitality and the Holistic Evangelism. And he talks about this Lord's Supper being something that we should all be imitating in our homes. This is a place where we come into fellowship with God through Christ, the work of Christ. We should be breaking bread in one another's homes on a regular basis. A friend loves mercy. Proverbs 20, 28 says this, Mercy and truth preserve a king, and by loving kindness he upholds a throne. In case you didn't know this, part of your calling, you need to know, is to take dominion, to rule in your home. Well, yourself first, in submission to God, your home your responsibilities to rule. And listen, we need to love one another and help each other by mercy and truth.
by loving kindness. That will uphold us. But we can't do that. Loving kindness, mercy and truth don't come about unless you know people. And there's unity through humility. Philippians 2, 1 says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We need to be filled with humility and care. You know, we are all sinners saved by grace. When you come to your table and others are with you, or you're with somebody somewhere, and you recognize that you're a sinner saved by grace, and all that you're trying to do is encourage them and strengthen them out of the gratefulness for God's abundant grace and mercy in your life, it's not about judgment. It's about restoration. It's about restoring them to a right relationship with God. And, folks, if somebody offends you, have mercy. Grant them grace and humility. I'll say this to you right now. There's a, there's a pastor that I know that he said this, and I just want to repeat it. I think we need to think of it often. Let our households, including this household, the people of God, but our homes, our households, be a place where grace is one notch higher than justice. Sometimes we rail for justice. We need to point out sin. But grace that God's given you, let it be at work. There's no point in justice without grace. Because grace brings restoration. I want to point out one other thing. If we look at, in closing, if we look at Nehemiah chapter 8. The joy of our days. I just want to read this to you, and I want you to think about this. So they've been working, they're fighting, they're building, and then they come to the temple, and Ezekiel is reading God's law to the people, and it says this in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with all the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now I'm going to pause right there. These booths, these little tabernacles that they were making, these were um, so that they were be tabernacling before God just as little temples, right? And they would come together. And they would, why would they go to the temple? They would go to the temple so that they were able to come into the presence of God, confess their sins, be in relationship, go to the presence of God, even though they were kept back. But God said, here, I want you to do this at a smaller level with all your household and build these little tabernacles so that you are thinking about being in my presence as a family. It's God with us. That's the point of those tabernacles. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountain and bring 
olive branches and branches of olive trees and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make the booths as it is written. Now again, all these leaves, these are all, they're getting these branches from high in the air. It's representing being up in the presence of God. Almost like the cloud, the glory cloud that came to the tabernacle. And it says this, Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one of them on the roof of his house or on the courtyards or the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate and the open square of the gate of Ephraim, so the whole assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths and sat under booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last, he read from the book of the law. And they kept the feast seven days. It was feasting. It was joy. It was fellowship together. It was representing God was with them. And their whole household. And on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. You know, Advent, we need to be full of joy and gladness. Center your daily, weekly, and your seasons around Christ. By the work of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And we are truly in a place of God with us. Let us do these things in community together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the joy of the season, for the joy that is ours all year long, because our Lord has come. Jesus is King of kings and Lord over all lords. His purpose shall be accomplished in the increase of his government. Indeed, there shall be no end. We thank you for the joy of his coming. Amen.